My text this morning is taken from Paul's second epistle uh, to Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 6 from our reading, Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. The time of my departure is at hand. In 1927, a new hymn book appeared in Wales. It was a Calvinistic Methodist hymn book, so you're probably expecting great things like that hymn there. But uh, unlike the previous uh, hymn book published in 1896, the last section in the book, which had always been heaven, always, had been replaced Poof, gone. Do you know what they put instead? National and social hymns. Heaven had disappeared from its pages. And unfortunately, that disappearance wasn't just happening in hymn books. Ministers too, people standing up here who were meant to be pointing you to the hereafter were veering. In 1923, Gresham Machen wrote that big book, Christianity and Liberalism, and he said that heaven was disappearing. He wrote, heaven now has little place, and this world is really all in all. The rejection of the Christian hope is not always definite or conscious. Sometimes the liberal preacher tries to maintain a belief in the immortality of the soul, but the real basis of that belief in immortality has been given up by the rejection of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Poof, heaven not only disappears, but it's rejected. Heaven today is despised, it's misunderstood, and even in these pews, heaven is kind of invented in our own little minds. It's about me and what I look forward to. One writer attending a recent funeral wrote these words. See if this rings true with some of the funerals you've been to. Because we believe in nothing, we end up acting like we believe in everything. And I often come away from the funeral services more confused and saddened than when I went in. Because first, I'm told that my friend is just another form of energy. Then I find, no, he's looking down at me. Then, no, that's not right. He's gone to a far better place. We've heard that, haven't we? But, no, his spirit is breathing in the daffodils outside the window. That, my friends, is not heaven. So my intention over this next month is for us to explore to our best of our ability the real heaven. I want us as a church to look forward, to look up, but ultimately to look at the darling of heaven, Jesus Christ. And yet in all of this, nothing less than the gracious, sovereign work of God the Holy Spirit can bring about that recovered awareness of the spiritual realities of heaven. So this morning, it's an introduction to eight weeks of heaven, God willing. 
if we're spared. Hopefully, who knows, we might be taken before the end. But my first sermon then is this question, where has heaven gone? Where has heaven gone? Back to basics. Before we can even consider heaven, there's a need to remind ourselves of some vital truths. And that's where we now come with me to the passage, 2 Timothy 4. This is our starting point. And we're looking at three Ds this morning. First of all is the big point. And I'm afraid it doesn't start very cheery. It's not very woke. But I want you to be awake. (laughs) Death is my first point. We are going to die. And then we'll think specifically about death as a divorce of body and soul. And secondly, as a departure. So lots of Ds for you note-takers this morning. So first of all, Paul is saying here, death, we are going to die. (laughs) Do you remember that? One writer said that there is nothing like the prospect of death to make things in life, to clarify the issues of life. So what's, what's this letter then? AD 64. 64 years after the birth of Christ, roughly. Nero, the madman, the Hitler of Roman emperors, is on the throne. He's completely unstable. He's killed his own mother, okay? He's going to burn Rome down before long, during the writing of this letter, actually, to build a golden house just for himself. His word is unrighteous. His court is unjust, and his judgment is actually lunacy, madness. Meanwhile, the Apostle Paul, notice, is imprisoned. He's on death. The Apostle Paul is on death row. And the Apostle Paul isn't focusing on Nero. He isn't focusing on the issues that are plaguing the Rome of that day. He's not getting bogged down with the thoughts of the winter that's coming. He's dreading the winter by the looks of it. No, look what he says. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. I charge you therefore, Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Paul is taking Timothy by the hand to a higher throne to a higher court, to the presence of God himself. He's looking up, isn't he? Now in the Bible, as we start considering heaven, I'm going to be introducing some concepts to you which we might open up further in the coming weeks. But there are three heavens described in biblical language. First of all, you have the first heaven, Genesis 1 verse 20, this is where the birds fly. So if you remember the birds, ah, but then Paul is looking beyond the first heaven to the second heaven where the stars and the planets are arrayed in all their beauty. And our forefathers were tempted to be steered by the stars because they're almost, they're so big, aren't they? They're worthy almost from our silly fallen nature, to be worshipped. The Egyptians worshipped the sun. 
But no, he goes beyond that again, and he goes from the first heaven to the second to the third heaven. God, remember, transcends our spatial categories. And yet the Father, according to Deuteronomy 26, dwells in this third heaven. But let's come back to earth. Sorry, I've taken you on a rocket there. <laughs> He's about to give Timothy a charge. In the presence of two witnesses. Who are they? Look at verse 1 again. God and Jesus Christ. Jewish tradition demands two witnesses. This is a court language that's happening here. In chapter 3, he's been telling Timothy of the resources he has already. Look, remember, Paul's teaching an example. He has a godly heritage. He's good mother, good grandmother, and understanding. And the scriptures too, there in verse 16 of chapter 3. But he now charges him in our text with the duties before God. Why? Because Paul knows that he will soon be departing. He will soon be leaving. Have you got that? As Paul is prepared to stand, not before Nero, but before this higher court, he wants to charge Timothy to exhibit the same readiness to die. That will then motivate him as he preaches the gospel. Verses 2 to 5. Preach the word. Full of imperatives here. I think Stuart Olliott preached on Friday night on grammar, didn't he? Indicatives, imperatives, and superlatives. Well, there are imperatives here. He's telling Timothy, preach the word, the gospel of God. What, are, what is the gospel? The good news, my friends, if you're an outsider here this morning, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Yes, thank you. To offer hope to the hopeless, life to the dying, light in the darkness. Why is all this so important, Paul? Look at our text, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. The sands of time are sinking, my friends. Have you realised that yet? You're, you're, it's like an hourglass. The sands are running out. The sands of time are sinking the dawn of heaven breaks. But what is death exactly? Well, death, as we know, is no natural thing, yeah? There was a heavenly place called Eden, and this is a garden which we will be frequenting quite a bit in the next couple of weeks. We'll be hearing about how our ancestors walked with God on the same level. But there was a day when they believed a lie. And you've been believing it ever since. Do you remember that lie? You shall not surely die. The son of the morning, Satan, the enemy, Lucifer, call him what you may, took part in this fall, this, this great fall from grace. 
But sin itself produces death too. So don't think you're off the cuff, my friends, because you're as much a sinner as those first walkers in the garden. Remember James's words, sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Death is the consequence of sin. It's the punishment for sin. Death seeps from a broken, divine commandment. I can see some of you glazing over already because you think, oh, he's talking about phrases which are completely foreign to the 21st century. Really? Are they really foreign? Only seeing dad on earth Saturday? Adultery? We could go on, couldn't we? We could go on. The way to heaven, to God, is now shut. Fire now bars our first parents. Do you remember when they were left the Garden of Eden? Where you're hearing a lot of them in it, but bear with us. The cherubim had flaming swords to guard the way into God's presence. There was fire, wasn't there? The way is shut. This is the same fire that Moses encounters on Mount Sinai. God is there, but between him there's fire. The way is shut. And it goes on, doesn't it, when every time they had to make a sacrifice, they were putting animals on this fire, hoping and looking forward to that one day where they'd be able to go through the fire again into God's own presence. And when they built the temple and the tabernacle, there was that gate or curtain barring them from God's presence. And do you know what was embroidered on the curtain? The same cherubim and their fire. You see, there's no way through that fire in our own strength. The way is shut. Yes, we all sin. Like I said, we know what sin is, don't we? Even in this place. Rivalry. Pride. Gossip. It's, we're all sinners, aren't we? But out there, you've got alcoholism maybe in here. Sin is the lot of humanity. Unsatisfaction. Death. You see your relative dying and you tell me you don't know what sin is. God, in his righteous judgment, pays the wages of sin in the currency of death. For all have sinned. Have you, have you ever thought about these words? And fallen short of God's heaven, the glory of God. In the Old Testament, it was revealed to God's people. He was known as Yahweh, the covenant God, that he was always associated with life. If you were close to God, you lived. But being cut off from him equaled death. That's where we get the Hebrew word Sheol coming into place. Has that word bothered you? It's bothered a lot of Christians. In Greek, it's Hades. And what is Sheol or Hades? It's the currents. It's, it's come because of sin, hasn't it? The abode of the dead. 
Number 16, Psalm 30, Isaiah 38, locates this abode in the low places of the earth. The dark place, the cut-off place. But it's not automatically hell. You know, Sheol is one of those words which is used differently in the Bible. That's why some of our translations have grave, pit, hell. The word sometimes refers to the grave, Ted Donnelly says, to which we all go because we're all sinners. Death is that price we've got to pay. And sometimes to the place of punishment to which believers do not go. And God revealed to his ancient people that he was far above them now on the mountain's tops. But you know what the most comforting words in that episode when Moses is scrambling up and he sees that fiery bush, he hears the voice of God, but there's fire blocking the way. Do you know what the most comforting words that came from that bush? I am the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I am their God. Why? Because they're alive. They're alive. The land Thomas, I'm sure many of you did the land in school, sometimes wrote about the horrors of death and he said, and you, do you know this? Do not go gentle. My father, there on the sad height. Curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Paul isn't like the land's dad, is he? Let's look at the text. What's he saying? Look at verse 6 there. For... So the word there is telling me, the reader, that Paul has been thinking about death from verse 1. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. This is a, in the King James Version. It's just offering, isn't it? But it's, in, in Greek, it's just um, two words here. It's in the ancient times, they would give wine or oil as offerings. And, it, you know, it pours out, doesn't it, naturally? I once had a new of a preacher who did, there was a plant pot down here and he, he explained a drink offering by pouring the water perfectly into the plant pot. I'm not going to do that this morning. Paul here is being poured out as a drink offering. You know, what were they saying when they were pouring out the offering? They were saying, well, as this oil is poured out, so may my life be poured out for you, gracious God. It's a bit different, isn't it? To rage in against the dying of the light. So precious, so valuable. You can hear, imagine people looking at the oil and the wine and thinking, oh, what a waste, what a waste. But Paul is taking the image and saying that my life is in the process of being poured out. Jesus died for me, and my life now responds as a sacrifice to him. Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, Christian. So it's different in the sense that there's a process going on for a Christian. But then he mentions the word departure, doesn't he? And this is a word that actually involves each and every one of you, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. We're going somewhere. We're going back to basics this morning, yeah? If you were looking forward to harps and things, no, we've got to go back to basics. There's a departure here. I remember meeting some of you in Schiphol, in Amsterdam, and we were waiting for the plane, and you know what it's like. The name of the plane comes up. It's about to leave. Go to gate number whatsoever. Now, you imagine how ridiculous that would have been if we'd just gone to sleep at the gate. Or that we go home. It's ridiculous. You know, when you're in a departure lounge, you're going somewhere, aren't you? We're, we're traveling somewhere. And Paul is speaking here like a traveller, preparing himself for a journey. He's looking up at the flight board and he's seeing that his departure is imminent. It's flashing like in an airport. Paul uses the word analusis here. And that, in ancient times, that word, imagine two big cows, not cows, oxen, and they're yoked and they're plowing the field away. And at the end of the day, the farmer lifts the plow off and they depart into an open field. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying there's a sense in which my death will be just like that. The Lord will take the burden from my neck and I will go and lay it down and depart. Paul isn't being melodramatic here. You see from our reading that he's still asking for his kit, isn't he? I love these verses. It's so real, isn't it? Look at verse 13. He wants his cloak for another winter that's coming in verse 21. So he knows that his departure is not happening that moment. He still wants to read. He's got things to do. But he knows that death is coming, you see. He's ready. Are you? Are you ready? So we've thought of death now, that first point. But we need to look further about what death is. Death is a divorce, secondly, much more briefly, I assure you, of body and soul. In the funeral, some Christians say, oh, Uncle John is now eating with St. Paul. Be careful, Christians, okay? <laughs> Be careful. Let's think a bit about this quickly. There are three states. Our current state, it's good to be alive, isn't it? Body and soul. We have been rescued from sin, if we're Christians, and are being conformed to the image of Christ. If you're not a Christian, you still have time in your current state. But then when I die, I enter the intermediate state. Now that's a posh word. It's not purgatory, right? Not purgatory. The intermediate state is we enter a better state where our souls are conscious. Yeah? We're not sleeping until the resurrection. God forbid, today you will be with me in paradise. 
We're with Jesus as Christians. But it's too late if you're not a Christian. You see why this sermon is so important? Today is the day of salvation, not when you die. There's no bus going to take you from hell to heaven. And your souls are there in the intermediate state, but not your bodies, okay? That's coming in the final state where we will be resurrected persons with glorified souls and glorified bodies. They're looking forward to that up there, as are we. When we die, our souls will be conscious in the intermediate state, separate from our bodies, but blessed nonetheless. Now you say to me, what about Luke 16, where he's, he's got a tongue and he's got eyes? You remember that parable of Lazarus and the rich man? Or when Paul talks about another body being given to him, no, what does he say? A building from God, not a body. And John sees that great multitude in Revelation 6 and 7. You'll say, Nathan, how can you see without a body? <laughs> the Scripture is helping you here. It's using human language, yeah? If we compare Scripture to Scripture, we know from John 4 that God is spirit and that the angels are spirits. By saying this, it gives us a standard then, you see. For every, you're not going to be dancing straight away when we get to heaven. If you say that a soul needs a kind of body, then you're veering into this area where you say that God needs this kind of body and it's not right. God is spirit. And the, a good text here is 2 Corinthians 12. Do you remember when Paul is taken to the third heaven and he holds back? But notice what he says. I don't remember if I was, he can't recall whether he was in the body or out of the body, but the important detail is when he's this idea that he is consciously existing outside his own body. It's a possibility. Don't ask me to explain the physics. I don't understand it. So to return to that Christian funeral, my grandfather will be dancing one day. He will be eating. But it's not yet. Not yet. But that doesn't mean he's not seeing Christ. Let's listen to this paragraph. After death, the bodies of men decay and return to dust. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, okay, having an immortal existence, return immediately to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory. Notice this bit. They await the full redemption of their bodies. The souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, and they are kept for the judgment of the great day. Scripture recognizes no other place except these two places for the souls which have been separated from their bodies. 
So we've learned that Paul, yes, we're going to die. That's really important to remember. Secondly, the human soul does not uh, disintegrate like our bodies do for a time. But thirdly, and now I finish, there is a destiny. There's a destiny, okay? Do you remember what Paul says in Philippians? My desire, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Is that your desire this morning? Or do you want to go home for your chicken? We've covered a lot of things, all right? We've covered a lot of things. Paul is not falling asleep when he dies. That's unscriptural. Paul is definitely not going to purgatory, this awful place where we kind of burn for the remainders of our sin. No, let's finish now on a high, right? If you're a Christian here this morning, you have been justified by faith. What does that mean? God looks at me, God looks at you, and he sees holiness, not guilty, price is paid. Is that good? It's good, isn't it? And that writing is written in red. And you know why it's written in red? Because Jesus Christ did the impossible. Not only did he bear your punishment on the cross, not only did he pay the price for those things you could never atone for, but he also won eternal life for you, yeah? By keeping the law. All the benefits gained by Christ and his perfect life are immediately, immediately conferred onto you when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He who believes this morning has eternal life. Are you glad? Yes. Amen. See, death is not the end. And Christians, stop behaving as if death and retirement is the end of your journey. There's another chapter coming. I have a yearning for that land. And on the basis of Christ's perfect obedience, you are immediately entitled to eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? However, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're still trusting in coming to church or being related to this person or being a good boy in school or being a good girl in whatever, um, you know, if you're living a life of unrepented sin, then you are a great danger this morning, friends. That's why I'm here. You're in great danger to die is to appear before the judgment throne of God, that higher throne than Nero, unprepared, unforgiven, without hope, without hope, without hope. You need to wake up. I don't know if you've all had those dreams when you're in an exam room and, oh dear, I can't remember my uh, revision, especially for mathematics. Sorry, Beryl. <laughs> I have that dread of going back and doing GCSE maths. Perhaps you've had a dream where the train is leaving and you're not on the carriage. My friends, have you ever thought of heaven? Or has heaven just disappeared for you? If you don't know Christ... The terrible thing is that heaven, that glorious, 
abode will indeed disappear forever for you. I told you this wasn't a very woke sermon or 21st century, but it is, my friends. It's really important. The Victorian engineer, I finish now, Isambard Kingdom Brunel. You've heard of Isambard? You see him with that top hat, smoking in front of those grand chains. And he was well known for getting people to places, wasn't he? You know the bridge in Bristol? That was his, you could say, that's my, I did that. You mean fancy saying that, you know? Oh, that bridge is mine. Oh, that road is mine. The Great Western Railway, I built that. Yes, I'm, I'm the best at getting people to places. What a boy. Oh, you'd think he's ready, wouldn't you? But one thing he couldn't build, you see, was a way across that fire. A way to God. A way to heaven. A way through that judgment. Because he was a sinner, you see. And his friend, John Horsley, wrote to him, I would implore you to reflect upon the hour of death, which must come upon you sooner or later, is Ambad. Your life has been one of almost unparalleled devotion to your profession, to the exclusion, too far, too great an extent, of that which was your due to your God and to your family. If you would only bring your powerful intellect to bear upon the subject which contains the one thing needful, the one thing needful, the one thing needful, my friends, this morning is our lovely Lord, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who loved you, who gave himself for you, who invited you to come to his Father's house, then heaven, when we believe in him, will no longer be a disappearing concept or a a myth of our own making. It will be your destiny. Why? Because you will see him there. It will be your delight, your delight. Because that's what heaven is. I am preaching to two groups here this morning. It's unavoidable. Those who have a ticket to heaven and everlasting life and those who have a ticket to hell and everlasting destruction. What? Who are you? Andy has said repeatedly last month, hasn't he? Why don't you come? All things are ready. Jesus Christ says, come, come, come. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why are you waiting? Are you waiting to get better? Don't do that. Don't do that. Go to Jesus Christ as you are. Naked, come to thee for dress. You naked this morning. Helpless, come to thee for rest. Don't wait till you're better because you never get better. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, the one thing needful, or I die. It is appointed man once to die, and then the judgment. Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's finish by singing a hymn. 
which Charles Wesley describes so lovely Lord and Saviour as the lover, the lover of my soul. Jesu, lover of my soul, let me, let me to your bosom fly. Let's sing together 514 if you're listening at home.
Father, we've come face to face with hard things this morning. The death is coming, and yet may we be ready, for there is a death defeater, a saviour, and his name shall be called Jesus, the one greater than Noah, the great rest, the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, be with us today as we muse on the eternal, and tonight as we hone in on that great ladder that Jacob saw from earth to heaven. May we experience something of heaven on earth. And now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen.